0: We hustle when we grind to get to where we're at. Our purpose we will find, so we gotta stay on track. Wasn't well, easy for no one. Life is tough, we understand. No, you're the chosen one. This is all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan, and it's game time. Regardless of the struggle, man, we still grind. Always motivated and hustle, so we all rise. Minority report, future bright, so we all shine. Let's go.
1: The
2: nice. Minority report, report movement. Everything we discuss here on the podcast reflects our own personal thoughts, views, and not those of our institutions we attend, or other colleagues, or any affiliates of this podcast.
0: Welcome to episode three: LGBTQ plus in healthcare. Please enjoy.
2: So, welcome to another episode of the Minority Report. We are four soon-to-be PAS with different backgrounds, attending different programs, with different life experiences, bringing awareness to various issues that affect students on their journey to healthcare and medicine. My name is Sato, I'm joined here by my friends Aaron and Carlos, and today um, I am pleased and honored to have two guest attendees, Asia and Cooper, Um, if you know Asia you want to start off by introducing yourself.
3: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me, you guys. My name is Asia. I am a new PA, somewhat out of PA school for one year. Um, I practice in primary care and infectious disease in Los Angeles, mostly with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham for PA school as well as undergrad. And um, I blog at Couture and Clinic. That's about it.
4: All right. Cooper, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Cooper Couch. I am technically a PA student for the next 72 hours. (laughs) (laughs) but I'm originally from Oklahoma, and I'll try really hard not to code switch into my southern accent. (laughs) There's nothing
3: wrong with those.
4: (laughs) There's not, but it might just come off as offensive if I do it accidentally. (laughs) But all my family is from Oklahoma and and Texas. But I went to school in Vermont. for Spanish and undergrad and then I went to, um, or I'm still at USC Um, and I'll be hopefully, I'm living in Colorado, Um, I'm hopefully gonna be working in family medicine at an FQHC. Um, I made sure that I had a, a trans health elective rotation so that I could bring that to Western Colorado. And for those that don't know what FQHC is, you want to elaborate real quick? Qualified Health Center, some of the highest quality of care um, for underserved and uh, underinsured populations. All right, so we'll go ahead and jump straight into
2: it. So let's start with Asia. Um, What kind of current healthcare training you receive in regards to the LGBTQ plus community?
3: That's a really good question. Um, I think that this is one of those things that varies very greatly, depending on where you go to PA school, what kind of geographic location. Um, for me in Alabama, I felt that we didn't receive Near enough. Um, it was kind of one of those like one-hour elective things where we kind of box in all different types of minority healthcare and into an hour lecture. Um, but I do hear from other places that you know they are having the opportunity for trans healthcare electives, like Cooper said, and, and are really taking time to dig into those. Um, Uh, special issues. But for me, I feel like it was really lacking. I know I would venture as far as to say the majority of uh, medical programs, particularly in the Southeast, um, have a long way to go before they're really inclusive regarding sexual orientation and gender. Um, So yeah, I'm really glad that you guys are doing this. And it's an it's an important field to, I guess, broaden. Um, Cooper, what is your experience as a current student? Do you feel that in your curriculum, you know, is your experience the same as mine was?
4: Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's very program dependent. So, um, and especially what you said about kind of having one course that was kind of all (laughs) um, marginalized communities together into one one lecture, the ARCPA standards that are effective September 2020. There's two that specifically call out um, gender identity, sexual orientation, and human sexuality, um, and I think that you know programs are popping up all over the place, and they're doing their best to meet these standards. And um, I think a lot of them are are meeting those standards because they want to be accredited. If they weren't, but others are exceeding those expectations. So um, the two standards that I'm talking about, one was um, the curriculum must include instruction to prepare students to provide medical care to patients with consideration for their disability status, for special health care needs, ethnicity, race, gender identity, religion, spirituality, sexual orientation, and social determinants of health. And that's all in one standard. Um, And then the other one is um, about including instruction related to the social and behavioral sciences with death, dying, and loss, human sexuality, development across the lifespan, and things like that. So um, I guess they're very broad standards, and they don't specifically state that you need to teach your students about PrEP and PEP, or hormone management for patients who are transitioning, or why pronouns are important, or why the term gender dysphoria is problematic. Um, Those are things that, you know, it's it's kind of up to the in, the individual program to interpret how they're going to teach on gender identity and sexual orientation um, and I think that you know fortunately for people who are advocates I think students have the most say in what happens at their program <laughs> um, and at my program specifically uh, we had one lecture and I said okay is this the only only lecture we're going to get And they're like, well, we were planning on that. And I said, well, how about no? (laughs) Um, How would you feel about like maybe incorporating this or that and my program director is awesome. Um, He was super, super receptive and said, you know, nobody's really spoken up about this before. So I really appreciate you bringing it to my attention. And now um, from my understanding, we have at least one lecture every semester and before we only had one in the first or second semester. Um So he ended up actually even inviting a trans man who won a humanitarian award for being um just an awesome human. <laughs> um, his name is Joseph Burwell, and he flew him out from Phoenix, Arizona, to come teach us about trans health um my third semester and wow. Just the fact that I said, "Hey, <laughs> can we do something more and then they made it happen was like really great um so I guess what the the point that I want to make is that you know. The standards are there, and they have to meet them. But it really is up to the individual students to say, "Hey, is there any way that we could have more of X, Y, or Z?" So I think that's really important that you pointed out
2: um, that you have to almost call out your program sometimes, you know, in in kind words, but you know, you have to let them know, you know, this, this sometimes this isn't enough, like meeting the requirements isn't enough, right? It's not like they send us PAs out there just to meet the bare minimum requirements of being able to take care of a the patient where they want us to exceed far above that. So I think it's, you know, I think it's admirable that you spoke up, you know, because you, you saw the discrepancy between what you felt and what was given to you. And, um, you know, you kind of forced your program, not forced, but, you know, you got your program to exceed, exceed expectations, you know, or their expectations, at least.
4: Yeah, and it's a program I that thought, oh, you, focuses on diversity. So it kind of went in line with their mission. They said, oh, yeah, why aren't we doing this? So right, I think right. you might be surprised or students might be surprised at how receptive faculty
0: will be. <laughs> yeah, you brought up a good point, bro. And, you know, when Cooper, when you were telling us the standards, I mean, you can easily, a, a program can just talk about, you know, one tiny aspect of that broad, yeah. <laughs> you know, standard and say, oh, we we met it, you know. Like, but there's there's just so much more that goes into education and and becoming like what we were talking about earlier, like becoming a competent PA, a competent healthcare provider in general. Because you you have no idea, you know, what patient is going to walk in, what they're going to have, and what their history is and whatnot. So you have to be able to handle it all. And you know, if we're just breezing by just the bare minimum, then you know we're we're really not ready so thank you for bringing that up um and i I know some programs do uh go above and beyond and asia when you said you know you only had like about an hour lecture uh carlos and sato and i were talking earlier and you know some programs only have maybe five hours total right uh our program we had maybe like half a day and we had a guest speaker as well and you know we had um more components but I think I I, as much as we had I didn't feel prepared still and I can't imagine for other programs who have even less training than than what we got so
3: Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, In my opinion, I feel that a lot of um, programs, especially med schools, nursing schools, they cover kind of the basics in terms of terminology and what certain things mean. Um, But a lot of it is so kind of very basic level. Um, You know, I feel that, you know, reliably we could say that most people know what it means to be lesbian or to be bisexual and so to pound people over the head with those kinds of like broad you know terminology type things and to leave out the actual clinical aspects because people that's a misconception I feel is that you know people say well you know how is how is treating an an lgbt person any different than treating just your regular patient you know they're all humans and we're treating everyone equally and so that is obviously the case right we're going to treat people equally but there's special considerations that come into mind from a clinical perspective that can completely change the management of a patient. Um, And that's one thing that I feel that programs could do a little better on is kind of let's talk about the actual, you know, what changes clinically when you manage a patient who identifies as, you know, XYZ. Um, So that's where I feel you know, programs can really improve. Most everyone kind of, you know, we gloss over like, you know, these are what the terms are and, you know, this is what it means, but we don't get in deep into how that's actually going to help you manage a patient, especially in the, um, in like a primary care family medicine setting.
1: For sure. I think those are really good points. Um, Something that I just thought about is even though programs may be well intentioned and wanting to educate us as students, I think also a huge problem is just the lack of representation of um, you know the LGBTQ community in those in faculty positions um, in clinics, so <laughs> as much as much as you may have a good a good heart to want to educate like where where are you coming from how how like what place do you have to educate um, and I think that, that that could also be a huge factor.
4: I agree, I really appreciate that because a lot of times when I hear um, frustrations about not being taught what we expect expected to be taught or us having certain expectations that are here and those not necessarily being met. Um, I think a lot of times the conversation can get warped into a students versus faculty thing. Um, and what I've found is that's the quickest way to not get what you want. <laughs> so when you think about like, oh, they're well intentioned, they just need some guidance. Um, that's a really great way to put it. Um, and I think that You know one group that I know of that does a really great job um, is the LBGTPA caucus and they have a speakers bureau so if a program's having a hard time finding somebody that's somebody they could reach out to um, there's also Karen Berger with Queer Medication. Um, She does, she'll do things online um, and then different people that I've met through the LBGTB caucus and others. There's, there's plenty of educators out there. It's just, they might not be in your city, but a lot of them are very okay with doing a virtual type thing because um, I'm actually going to be giving my very first lgbtq health lecture in september at a pa program so i'm looking to those people for (laughs) guidance and advice to make sure that i i cover things but i agree that the medical care is the part that we need to be teaching like the social and behavioral part is really important too but I, i don't feel like you can separate them and say oh well they have higher rates of suicide and higher rates of substance use and that's all important and that is related to their medical care it's their mental health but what about the physical Um, aspects that we have to think about. Like, um, did you ever get vaccinated for Hep A? Is that a question that you ask your men who have sex with other men? Um, You know, questions like that that are just, the CDC has a whole entire page on LGBTQ health um, and different guidelines to consider and specific, you know, considerations that you should have as a clinician for somebody from any one of the, the people that are in the amazingly broad spectrum of lgbtq plus people
0: i think it's like important like everyone's talked awesome about... that you brought up uh, oh sorry sorry no oh, go ahead uh, you go first uh, uh just real quick we we uh we actually had uh pa karen berger come talk to us and give us a lecture. so she was awesome if programs can get her to come lecture and then obviously you afterwards That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, Cooper, they
1: were just asking who was the guy that um, that spoke to your school?
0: Uh, Joseph
4: Burwell um, with PeaceWork Medical. Um, and he and I are really tight, so <laughs> <laughs> let me know. <laughs> I actually went down and volunteered. He has a, a free clinic for um, people who are trans who are not able to get healthcare because of their documentation status. And every month he... Mm. Has hormone refills and does medical care for um trans latinx mostly trans women but also trans men um and i went down and volunteered and stayed at his place because he didn't want me to have to pay for a (laughs) airbnb and you know they have their own little like guest house and everything he was super nice so that's
2: awesome yeah i was saying um you know it's if we're not educated on it you know if our programs aren't taking the initiative to teach us about it then There's really no way for us to actually learn it, right? Um, It's kind of like you know, it it can be frustrating. But you know, a lot of these um, uh, we never got taught about the LGBTQ plus community growing up. You know, there was a lot of terms that we used to use. I used to use personally growing up as a child. You know, that was never frowned upon. You know, it was almost part of society, right? And no one ever told me it was wrong, right? So then you never grow up knowing that it's wrong. It's not until you know college. Further education, you know, grad school stuff like that, where you finally realize, wow, how, how ignorant was I to, you know, use terms like that. And yeah. it's frustrating when you hear people still use it, you know. And so it's, um, it's easy to feel, you know, ashamed that you don't know about something. But honestly, if you're never taught something, you won't know it, right? So you don't have to feel ashamed about not knowing. But you should be, you should feel ashamed if you're ignorant enough not to learn it. You because know, there's enough of a movement going on now, there's enough resource out there, there's enough people that are out there that are willing to teach you about it, right, for you not to want to take the an initiative and educate yourself on it. And I think that's just important.
3: Um, Caitlin in our chat said that uh, another issue is that LGBT help is still often taught as an other that needs its own lecture and I'd love to see more lecturers be aware of their heteronormative language and I think this is such a such a such a good point you know um, there's this quote that I love that's like no one would have to come out if it wasn't assumed that we were all straight Um, and so yeah I think that's a really good point you know there's plenty of, of Opportunity to be more inclusive, just in your regular schmegular, you know, uh, lectures. There's no, you know, in 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 most cases, there's no need for a whole extra other lecture. You know, we can talk about STDs together. We can talk about fertility issues together um, as a nice little blurb instead of trying to pack in the whole spectrum of health issues into a a single thing. So yeah, I think that Caitlin, that's a really good point. A lot of medical education is very binary in terms that we treat men this way and we treat women this way and if they, uh, you know, um, those guidelines can sometimes be very strict and not always apply to everyone across the gender spectrum. So I think that's a really, really good thing to point out, Um, you know, when all of you students out there taking these issues to your, your program directors.
4: Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And as soon as you silo diversity into its own thing. That's when it it gets left out of every other piece of the pie. Right. So we were just talking about this in a different um, Different setting and we're like, well, do we create this diversity related thing or do we try and integrate diversity into all these other things. And it was like oh yeah actually let's do that <laughs> that sounds better because we're not sorry we're not gonna silo it or anything but um you know a perfect example is some programs will try and you know like you said carlos well-intentioned but it'll always be the gay man who's african-american with hiv and um i don't know you know it's just always a stereotype type thing um or you know, they'll, they'll say he's a gay man, but they don't say what his behaviors are. So you assume if he's gay, he probably also has anal receptive sex. You can't assume that <laughs> about a gay man. <laughs> like you, There's just a lot of assumptions that are made when you don't have somebody from that community um, educating. So I, I can see how challenging it would be to make sure every single lecturer was able to incorporate that in. But I think it would be a great way to kind of start a conversation and maybe educate them in the process. And to be honest, I was that one who always raised my hand and was like, how did this, how would this affect our trans community? <laughs> like, from like the endo perspective, when we're talking about those, I'm like, if they're taking this, how does that work? And it's a question that they've probably never been asked, and a lot of them don't know the answer.
3: So... And a topic that could be covered in pharmacology, but isn't. Um, Same with PrEP and PEP. And I'm so sorry, my dog is barking. Um, With PrEP and PEP, you know, that could easily be a part of pharmacology. And at least for me, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't touched on. Definitely not hormone management for trans patients was not a topic. Um, So those are just a couple examples of where these seemingly very niche topics can fit into the broader clinical spectrum and and education. One second.
0: Just a question to to throw out there. I I know Pa Berger did do a uh, lecture at Kappa, right, um, at the Kappa conference this past year. What do you guys think about you know having those kind of lectures at conferences to get CME, or not even just at conferences? You know these these type of webinars, having you know Cooper or Asia or Pa Berger or anybody else talk about and educate us future PAs you know on medication management hormone management whatever else that you know goes into the full equation of caring for our patient right so
4: I love you that you brought that up um <laughs> it was actually something when I was a LBGTPA caucus student leader fellow in 2018-19 I noticed that there weren't any CME at Kappa. That related to lgbtq health and um i tried to join (laughs) the uh, minority affairs committee but um wasn't able to because i was a student i'm not really sure what the issue was but um i ended up talking to saloni sorup for quite a bit to to make sure that we identified some people who might be interested in doing lectures so that was covered and Karen was one of them. Um, Kayla McLaughlin, I think, also gave a, a presentation at CAPA as well. Um, but I think you're right. Yeah, it does take people from the community and from those experiences, you know, I'm not saying that you have to be a member of the LGBTQ plus community to teach on it. Um, I think if you work with those patients every day and you understand their struggles, then you know the medication management, you could teach it too. But um, I do think because it's not expected to be part of the basic curriculum that, People do have to go, kind of go out of their way to um, to educate themselves. I don't know what your experience has been like, Asia.
3: In terms of having to kind of seek external sources mm-hmm. of information, yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of it for me uh, as a new grad was kind of learn on the job. So I have a great uh, supervising physician um, who's been in HIV and LGBT care for years and years and years. So. Um, Most of it I did learn as we went along through this, uh, you know, through the past year of my employment. Definitely don't feel that there was, um, that school really kind of prepared me for the special topics that we address. Um, But yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up the CME as well because you know people obviously we all need to be incentivized right it's we need that cme and it's really really worthwhile um because you're going to address these patients anywhere you go whether you're in an urgent care the er you know whatever it's not just your primary care team who's going to be taking care of these people um so yeah I, that's that's kind of where i was i it was a lot of learn on the job right,
2: I'd, I'd take it one step even further and make it a requirement right? Why is this not a requirement for like a CME requirement, right? Why is, you know, um, minority health disparities, not a requirement for CMEs, right? If you want to take care of patients, then you have to have a basic fundamental understanding of what your patients go through. And the fact that it's not a requirement is kind of a, almost an embarrassment on the on the medical field as a whole, because you can't pretend to understand something that you really have no idea about.
3: Yeah. And I think too, just um, you know, across the country it's so, so different, you know, practicing in in Los Angeles and West Hollywood versus rural Alabama, you know, where I'm from. Um, we we also kind of I think assume that all the providers want to know these things and want to treat these patients. But you know, in some parts of the country, the the reality is that, you know, not only do they not know how to, but but they're not interested or there's still stigma regarding HIV or being trans or whatever. Um, and so maybe, maybe making it a, a more strict requirement would help reduce those gaps. That's another thing too, is it's all about attitude and who patients feel comfortable with. You can have the most knowledgeable expert who doesn't relate to a patient or, you know, just doesn't, I guess, yeah, it doesn't relate to them, doesn't understand them. And it, you know, it goes out the window because the patient doesn't come. Um, which is a whole a whole issue of you know adherence and finding providers who you feel safe and who you feel comfortable with, not just in you know the urban areas um, so I think increasing cME requirements would maybe help address that a little bit.
4: The one thing I did want to mention that came up in the chat that I was going to segue into with the cME piece was that the lbgtPA caucus did just have a pride and p a practice event that was online on Saturday and it was really great. I didn't get to attend all of it because our internet went out and I was without internet until 11 p.m. which was just as horrible to miss the event but also to not have Netflix or any study material.
3: <laughs> and was there CME or none?
4: Yeah, there was CME. So it's CME. Um, and I know that they're working on trying to get um, some of those presentations onto their website. Um, for members, it was a free event. Uh, for non-members, I believe it was $75. But I will say that every every year at the annual conference, um, the LBGTPA caucus shows up big time. Um, so there is there are plenty of CME opportunities at the national conference. I think the um, state chapters are the ones that might you know not have as as many people to educate on that topic um it might not be you know we don't really have state LBGT associations we kind of just have the national um but it takes those members that live in those states saying hey we need to make sure this happens at our state conference too and even if it's just one lecture you know a lot of times you sign up for these conferences and um you're kind of stuck there all day, right? Like there might be one little block where it's like, oh, none of those really seem interesting. I'll go to the LBGT one. And then they show up and they're like, oh, wow, actually I learned a lot. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm really glad I went here. So even if they don't necessarily want to at conferences, sometimes they end up getting exposed to it. And
3: that's I great. find a lot of times with like LGBT events and education events, a lot of times it's like, you know, you're preaching to the choir, like the people who come, <laughs> the people who already know all this stuff and, um so, you know, that's kind of funny. But yeah, there is a lot, a lot, a lot to be learned. And I've had that exact same experience where people come because, you know, they didn't have anything else to do, but ended up learning more than, than they expected to. Yeah. Um, there's a good question in the chat. It says, does anyone fear being looked down upon or discriminated against having LGBTQ experience on your application or being LGBTQ when applying to PA school? Um Yeah. Again, I think, uh, you know, it's, it depends so much on where you're going. Um, I'd like to think that schools are very open-minded now and that having LGBTQ students is like a good thing. Um, but you know, there's very conservative parts of the, of, of the country. I personally did not have any sort of identifying information regarding my sexual orientation on applications. You know, I, um, you know, I didn't highlight like the, um, volunteer work and stuff that i had done and just kind of relied on academics and things that i considered to be safe which you know looking back on i feel kind of bad about so i did have that fear a little bit um and and did at my rotations you know people i can't tell you how many times people would say to me like oh don't worry like we're gonna find you a husband and all this kind of stuff and i would just kind of be like Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, love that. Now let's close up this heart uh, type thing. Um, So yeah, I think, again, it's all about where you go. But looking back, my advice to you would be don't hide that part of yourself for fear. If the program doesn't want you for because you're gay or trans or whatever, then that is not the program for you. Um, So that's something that you should be proud of. And that is if you feel that that is a big part of your identity, then yeah, feel free to share that. Um, And if any program doesn't like it, like I said, that's not the school for you.
4: You know, I'm really glad that you asked that in the chat. One of the questions that the the guys here had for us was about obstacles that the LGBTQ plus community faces when entering healthcare. Um, And there were three things that I wanted to kind of focus on with that. And um, one of them was comfort. So I am actually, um, you know how PAEA had that article that went out that was like, no pride for some. Um, and they were asking students to respond to their experience uh, as a marginalized identity. I've been working on um, an article for that and one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize was the fact that I had a pre-health advisor who I trusted who advised me not to put anything related to LGBTQ plus identities in my resume, my application materials at all, because she said that ad comms might not have the same ideology as me. They might not see that as a diverse quality. Um, and so I guess, yeah, I absolutely, and I, you know, I regret that I um, complied with that, <laughs> that I ended up, you know, Trusting her years of experience and helping applicants get into schools and things, and um, you know I'm sure she had an experience that taught her that, um, but like Asia said, that's not a program you want to go to um, and if it is, then you should want to go there so you can change it. <laughs> right. I have a question actually because if if you get and say
2: you know you you do hide the fact and then you get in to a program that may or may not have been willing to do it, would that be able to you know I mean, yes, it's it's something that you hide. Yes, it's something that you're not comfortable with. But at the same time, would it give you an opportunity to yeah, open exactly. more doors for future students? Yeah, that, and I guess that... that
4: comes back to one of the other pieces, which is kind of the tokenization piece of like um, feeling like you're the only LGBTQ plus person. And not only are you expected to voice uh, the opinions of all gay men everywhere if you're a gay male but oh also every bi person (laughs) who's erased and every trans person that you actually don't really know a whole lot about because you haven't lived their experience it's it's kind of one of those things where if you're a person of color you don't have the experience of every single person of color but there's unique traits about each that is basically just being marginalized and discriminated and oppressed right um i don't think that as a white cis Male, that I have ever really felt like my oppression was oppression because <laughs> I have so many other advantages in society. Um, but recently, I've been kind of reflecting on that a little bit more and how it just internally I've had to think about actually, like, you know, some of those experiences you went through, that really wasn't okay. And, you know, you not speaking up with your privilege and your um, advantage as a white cis male. Means that a black gay male might not, might have the same exact experience and be even more marginalized because you didn't speak up. You know what I mean? So that's kind of um, there's this quote that I've been looking back to over and over, and it's look at where your privilege intersects with somebody else's oppression, and that's the part of the system that you have the power to help destroy. Um, and that's a Ijioma Luo quote, who's a fantastic um, writer. Um, I think that we kind of have to think about that when we're looking at schools so (laughs) for example i had three schools i could only afford three interview invites um, because i chose to apply to like 20 schools (laughs) and realize how expensive that would be after supplementals and everything um so i went to the three and two of them were in very conservative states and i didn't get the vibe from the program that they were anti-lgbtq or anything like that um but then i went to USC and it was just literally it was like, all right, do I pay for the three year program that's gonna land me at like over 200,000 something dollars in debt uh, closer to 300 <laughs> um, or do I go to the program that's like half the price where I want to feel comfortable? Um, so if you think about where the LGBTQ community is more um, there or present or visible, or you'd think like what are the safe cities for a gay person in, in the US today? Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York City. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, Oklahoma, where it's super cheap to live (laughs) where I grew up. I would love to go back there, said no gay person ever. Um, So price is one thing, comfort, and then like feeling tokenized. I think that those can all be issues that you can face as as an LGBTQ plus person. And Um, You know, I chose to go to the expensive program. (laughs) Um, And it's not like it was without its fair share of marginalization throughout rotations and in class and um, with lectures saying (laughs) that, no, there's only homosexual or heterosexual. Bisexual didn't know. Oh, I guess it just they just started recognizing bisexual. And I had to talk with that faculty member not faculty but a instructor i guess that day and sit down and say well actually <laughs> here's some resources and today i'm going to take the time to educate you because i don't want this to ever happen again because i almost started crying in your lecture today <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like yeah those those are the obstacles that i can think of right now
1: something that With... i've been um oh, reflecting on is oh sorry about that no no you're, Aaron, good. you're good you're good um is that I think as minorities in these spaces, uh, you know, do we see entering these difficult situations as a privilege to educate others, or, or like we we have to, you know, check off check off all the boxes of of um, you know getting to the finish line of like in this case PA school while also having the burden of educating others. So it's it's is it a privilege? Is it a burden? Is it both? Um, I think something that we're trying to do with, with this with this platform is. Um, obviously recognize that we only know um, we can only see the minority experience through our, our own lens. Right. So uh, just because, you know, as a Brown cis Latino male um, I can only speak to my experience that I've had, you know, grow up in the U S but I, it's very limited uh, in regards to other minorities. So I think uh, opening up, opening up these spaces and have people, you know, bring, bring your knowledge and bring your experiences and help, us grow as well as as people and clinicians i think it's it's awesome Uh, along with that uh, a question i wanted to
0: to do that too so thanks (laughs) a question that i wanted to ask was you know as pa colleagues as allies what can we do to help you know amplify what can we help to do to educate you know How what what's our role in this?
3: I I think um uh well I think that being willing to learn and wanting to learn is is you know a good first step. And clinicians, especially as PAs and you know, students, um, the best thing that you can do is make yourself a good, well-rounded provider. Make yourself someone who, you know, feels comfortable asking the questions. That's one thing that I harp on a lot to students and to people who ask me for advice. And um, you have to be comfortable asking the questions. So much information can be gleaned if you're just willing to ask those things. You know, it's like Cooper said, you know, we just make these assumptions about the sex practices of certain people just because, you know, based on our definition, but we don't ask those like intimate details and stuff like that. So my thing, what I would, my advice to you would be get comfortable asking questions that may feel uncomfortable. Um, A lot of times you'll find that people will say, wow, no one's ever actually asked me that before. And it really does change the management of the patient. So be comfortable asking the questions you know don't make it weird um and and just be someone who's well-rounded who patients can come to and be that person you know let's say you don't know what to do in this case and you don't have that experience Feel comfortable being honest and just saying, you know, this is not within my scope or this is not something I have enough experience on to adequately advise you and surround yourself with people who can, you know, make that network of people who you can say, you know, this is out of my league and I don't know. That's fine. As long as you can refer your patient to someone who can. And who can do it respectfully and comfortably? Um, so that's what I would say that you, as students and soon to be clinicians yourselves, can do. Um, you know, just on kind of a very basic level. And the advocacy and whatnot is fantastic as well. I love it. Um, but I would really focus on kind of on yourself and your clinical and interpersonal skills because it's going to be you out there interacting with these people, um, which can be very different than you know legislation and CME.
4: I appreciate that you, you focus on the individual, because I do think that we all have that responsibility as clinicians to do the best um, by our patients. It's the do no harm principle, right? Um, non-maleficence and beneficence and all the good words that we have to say in the PAO that some of us take very seriously and others are like, you know, I need a paycheck. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that being a, a clinician is um, being a provider that somebody's going to trust you with their health and their life and their um, illness or or lack of or expect you to help them prevent that illness. <laughs> um, I think social determinants of health really play into that. So being an advocate, yeah, is important. Um, you know, I, I would say right now, if you're listening to this and you did not know that there are 15 states that do not do not classify Um, beating somebody up or even killing them for being LGBTQ as a hate crime, then maybe that's one place you could start. Um, Go to the HRC website and just look at what those states are. See if you live in them. And that's one way to advocate for your patients because that can have a huge mental and physical toll. So I guess it's both sides, but I, I agree. If you're in the office with a patient, you sending that legislation to that person or signing a petition really isn't as impactful as a provider saying um you know the common uh, example i give is when i applied for the leader fellowship with uh, the caucus i wrote this essay about how um the very first time i realized that being gay in medicine was different was when i actually had a very positive experience i went to the usc student health center and my doctor who a lot of people have different opinions on either you really like them or you really don't um i showed up and and he asked you know, he's asking me like the full like H&P type questions. And um, when it came to sex, I said, you know, I responded. And I usually out myself by saying, well, my boyfriend, because my fiance isn't a gendered term. So Sometimes I'll even call Marty, my fiance, my husband or my soon to be husband so that I'm kind of like outing myself <laughs> so that the provider kind of knows. But with him, I was, you know, yeah, um, my boyfriend lives in a different state, so I'm not sexually active right now. And then he without even flinching or like even changing and like his demeanor, his body language, he said, OK, um, and started asking me all the appropriate sexual health history questions. Um, so I want to put one of you guys on the spot real quick, if I can. Um, how would you ask somebody about um, their sexual history in in practice? Like if you go into a patient's room and you know they're there for an STI screening, what what are some of the questions you're going to ask?
0: I would ask if they one are sexually active, two with one or multiple partners, Um, the type of sexual intercourse, oral, anal, vaginal, um, and the gender of their partner, right? Uh, Male, female, or both, right?
4: So one thing that I think is a very common thing to be taught in PA school is, um, are you sexually active? Great. Um, How many partners? Uh, Men, women, or both is a question that I always am like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that question because does it matter whether I have sexual relations with men, women, or both, or does it matter more from a biological standpoint or an STI standpoint to ask about what types of behaviors I have? So um, with penises, vaginas, you know, oral, anal, receptive, insertive, not insertive, um, toys no toys like all these kinds of things that you could really ask quite a few questions um, and just asking them as if they're normal makes it normal for the patient you know what I mean so if you say okay and um, what touches what (laughs) that's that's a question that um, I've heard somebody use and I'm like oh that's a great They might be uncomfortable sharing it with you, but if they kind of hesitate, then you start giving examples and they'll say yes, no, instead of kind of offering information. Um, So I guess that's one thing. I'm not going to go into like a sexual history taking 101 right now because I don't think I'm necessarily super qualified. But I will tell you that I connected with um, people from the LBGTPA caucus, um, John Baker, Um, Yvette Marie, who's on Instagram, Uh, John Baker's rectal rock star. If you haven't seen him around, he's very active on Instagram. Um, And then Joshua Oppenheim, they all gave me some some tips and examples because what if they're with the non binary patient, um, or not patient, but partner, um, and they're not men, women, or both? It kind of changes it from being heteronormative or a binary based um, question to more of a like physiologic
0: question. Got it. Thank you for enlightening us right there, and for putting us on the spot. No
3: problem. Yeah, I love that. I've also heard the same. What touches what? Um, it's also kind. Of, it's even like a nice icebreaker for the patient. You know, like instead of you being like, "Okay, like, do you have a penis? Where does it go?" type thing. It's, it's just more comfortable. So I love that uh, that question. I've heard it a lot too. It's always it is always received well, at least in my experience. Um, because yeah, that's a good question that's a good point. Um we are always taught men, women or both. Um, but as we know, some people identify as neither men nor women. And um patients really appreciate it when they're given when it, you know, they don't have to go into this explanation of their partner's anatomy, right?
4: Did did you say sexplanation?
3: I didn't. <laughs> that's um term, though. but you know, man, I should have just said yes, because that's what it was. <laughs> yeah
4: cool yeah the other thing that i wanted to um make clear was that um you know assuming gender and orientation is something that people do so um assuming somebody's gender just by how they're presenting um a way around that would be if if you suspect or even you don't suspect um you know assumptions are always best to be cast aside but um, if you're in a practice where you feel comfortable walking in and saying hi my name's cooper i'm the pa taking care of you today my pronouns are he him his how can i help you just hearing that you shared your pronouns is a way for them to feel if they are non-binary or they are questioning their gender that you are one of those providers that will be open to that kind of thing. And I know it's a super simple, you don't have to say, hi, I'm a gay man, so I get your experience. No, (laughs) you say, (laughs) that would be actually the worst thing to say, don't do that. (laughs) But just saying like, my pronouns are he, him, Um, how can I help you? And then that kind of, without having to wear a rainbow pin or having a flag on your door or anything like that, I think that's one way to just even uh, express that you care about that. (laughs) Um, The other thing is when I was working um, at a a health center, well, when I was learning as a student at a healthcare center in South LA with a trans health program, um, something that was hard for me to get over was like, oh, well, sexual orientation could be different depending on if you identify as male or female. If you're a trans woman, a trans male, some trans patients will identify as female if they're a trans woman, they say, Oh, I'm female. And others will say, I'm a trans woman. So, and then you ask, okay, well then what would that make their sexual orientation? Um, if depending on who they're sleeping with, and it's always best to ask <laughs> because you can't assume that if they're a trans woman with who's had, um, gender confirmation surgery in the sense that they have now have a, um, a neo vagina and they've had a, um, their phallus taken off, then you can't assume that that they're if they're having sex with partners who have penises, that that means that they're gay or straight or bisexual or, you know what I mean? So it's always good to just, instead of like using terms that kind of identify people in different boxes and categories, it's best just to kind of ask like from a more general broad um rather than, what's your sexual orientation? <laughs> so I don't know, because sometimes it doesn't give you the answers that you want.
2: What are examples of what um, providers have done for you or how they approached, like, you know, what they've said that made you feel more comfortable you know, or uncomfortable for that matter when you were the patient? You know, because it kind of flips the role around because you're no longer the provider, you're the patient. So what have they done or have not done that, you know, made yourself, made you feel more comfortable or uncomfortable.
3: Um, In terms of things that people, providers a lot um, do to women specifically or people who they assume identify as women, um, one thing that happened to me a lot, a lot, a lot, to the point that I even like took the prescription home um, is before leading with any questions regarding like sexual orientation or whatnot is the question, are you on birth control? No you know, Oh, here comes the pamphlet on the IUD and and everything else. Um, and it's gotten to the point, you know, we obviously encourage patients who are not seeking to be pregnant to be on birth control. That's just something that, that people are taught and and it doesn't necessarily make you a bad provider. Um, but I can't tell you how many times I took home, like the prescription for birth control. I'm like, Oh yeah, like, yeah, this is great. Thanks. Um, just because I didn't really feel comfortable enough to explain why I didn't need it. Um, so that's something to be aware of with with um female identified patients is is um you know that whole kind of contraception talk and, and finding out if it's even necessary so that's something that has happened to me over and over that i felt very negatively about um and then kind of the same as cooper things that i felt positively about were providers who just kind of like hit it with a stride there's no second glance there's no oh my gosh i'm so sorry you know it's just kind of a thing like. Um, You know, oh, you have a female partner? Great, now let's move on to why you're here type situation, you know, um, to ask the appropriate questions without, you know, making it this huge sidestep thing that kind of caught you off guard. Um, So those have been my experiences, both good and bad.
4: Yeah, I think I kind of touched on some of them too, but other ones that I haven't experienced but I've heard that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way is when people use terms like transvestite or transgendered. It's not transgendered. It is transgender, just to be clear. Um, And I think that sometimes, you know, as somebody who's very well-versed in that kind of terminology, it's like, oh, that was offensive. Like, I can't believe they said that. But what you have to step back and think is, oh, they they probably think they're well-educated because they even know what that term is. So it becomes a question of like, all right, well-intentioned, but here's some education and and why that that's different or, um, You know, other things um, that was there's a really great point that was made in the chat from Caitlin work to educate your office staff to be mindful of their greetings and language and assumptions as well. when i was talking to jonathan baker earlier today he said that first of all providers need to understand that the cultural sensitivity of everyone in their office is their responsibility and it's a reflection of them as providers so thinking about trainings appropriate intake forms the way people are addressed and the way questions are asked and just like not pathologizing things either so um i think that's those are great points to think about too. Um, One other thing that's important from like a sexual health perspective, um, that's not just LGBTQ+, but literally anybody who has sex, when you're doing gonorrhea and chlamydia testing, the CDC recommendation is to do a swab where there is contact. So whether it's oral, rectal, anal, vaginal. um, I think that's a very important thing that I have seen get missed. you know, just assuming that somebody practices one way and then tell them to like put a swab up their butt. It's like, well, nothing's been up there. So I don't know why I have to do this. But if you had just asked a detailed sexual history, then you know what swab needs to be done where. Or um,
3: entirely leaving it out and making the patient ask for the butt swab. That's arguably yeah. worse.
4: Yeah, that too. Yeah. The other thing to think about is that um, sometimes you might be the first person that they come out to. Um, When I was living in Oklahoma, um, you know, I had had sexual contact for the first time and I went to a doctor because I was super scared that I was going to get AIDS. Because growing up in Oklahoma, that's just what's drilled into my mind is, oh, you know, gay people get AIDS and then they die. And that's a really horrible thing. Um, Nobody should (laughs) take that as truth. That's just what I grew up hearing and, and being told. And so when I went to my healthcare provider, they were literally the very first time I'd ever come out to anybody. And I didn't even say that I was gay because the words like kind of come out of my mouth, um, come out of my mouth, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, just think about that and kind of respect that space. And again, just don't make assumptions, just you know, ask questions. So like, for example, if, if they say that they have a male partner, don't just assume that they have sex with that male partner. Um, Everybody's on a different um, journey and has different backgrounds and different beliefs and is in a different spot with their queerness or their gayness or whatever they want to term it. Um, And it's just important to recognize that and uh, just always test your assumptions.
3: Jenna, Gina? says in the chat, um, something I think about when it comes to LGBT medicine training in PA school is that homophobia from other students might surface. Is this something you've seen? And do you have any advice on addressing it? Opportunity nurses. OK. Um, this is a good question. And I think that everyone, to some degree, in a group setting with these people that you're going to be with for the next you know, few years, there's a little bit of anxiety. Um, maybe, you know, who knows, some people might not experience that. I did a little bit, but I found that it really wasn't, um, like interpersonally between me and my classmates. I never felt that they discriminated against me, that they had any issue with me whatsoever, but I did have experiences kind of like what with Cooper said, you know, people just using terminology that they don't understand or that they don't understand is offensive, like, you know, transvestite or that, that kind of thing, trans... Um, And so at that point, you know, it's up to you. I don't think that anyone, especially a student, should have to put the burden of educating their classmate on themselves. Um, You know, you're there to learn as well. And if you kind of have that emotional labor in it within you to educate your classmate, then, you know, good for you. But I hope that if this does come up, that you don't feel that it's your obligation to just because you possess the knowledge, right? Um, You know, we've been talking all this time about resources that people can use to educate themselves. Um, I think that there is accountability on the program's side, kind of bringing everything full circle. There's accountability on these program side to, to have a good base level of knowledge for providers when it comes to these types of things. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think you, you need to take that burden upon yourself unless you're really just feeling, you know, motivated.
4: <laughs> I think um, one thing that I wanna point out is that sexual orientation and gender identity are, are Title IX protected um, identities. So if you ever did experience homophobia, your university is likely required. Um, to do something about that. Um, uh, uh, speaking from my own experience, and I don't want to share too many details so um, so as not to make this person look bad, <laughs> um, but we had a lecture come. It was our very first lecture. And towards the end, you know, there were some things that I didn't really agree with during the lecture too. Um, but at the end, this person had us all Google the name of uh, a person who had... Died by suicide due to being in a very conservative environment and coming out. And for somebody who had a very similar experience to that, having the whole class be quiet and us all type this person's name and press enter and then read it um, was very shocking and upsetting for me. Um, it was like pretty traumatizing and i just started like bawling and it was like whether or not i told anybody if i was gay it was pretty obvious (laughs) at that point (laughs) um but that's actually what led me to having a, a longer conversation with my program director about it and and ways that maybe we could support the lgbtq community better and what he told me was you know i actually used to give out the rainbow caduceus pens and last year you know i forgot that and um I'm kicking myself now because I shared with him that there were people in the classes above me that never felt comfortable coming out at the program and I'm sitting here like why not like we have a great program <laughs> what are you talking about and there were just like slide like sly comments here and there from people in different situations that just made them feel uncomfortable and um, and so bringing that to his attention he made sure that at our white coat ceremony at the graduation for the next class everybody got a rainbow use pen and Um, that was extremely powerful for me. So I think that if you see homophobia, there are multiple ways that you can address it. Um, Just going to somebody you trust is the most important thing. Um, And then I did want to touch on the question about the LGBTQ plus rotation. Um, I actively sought that one out, but um, there was actually other students. I actually think I saw one of them who's here on Zoom with us today. Um, Yeah, I think she's still there. we uh, we had one with APLA Health, um, and then the Trans Health Program one I set up on my own, literally by cold messaging some people who worked at that clinic on LinkedIn that had gone to my program. <laughs> um, and then um, the other one, a student, um, had we had a, a surgery rotation at the site, and she found out that there was a guy that did gender confirmation surgeries, and she was able to make it so that she was with him once a week. Um, and then I... Told my clinical faculty like I really, really, really want to do that one. <laughs> so it ended up happening. But um, it depends on the program, super program dependent, and your area because like I'm in LA, <laughs> so uh, another reason I wanted to come here because um, I'm I'm not gonna get this kind of experience in Western Colorado where I'm gonna be practicing. So.
2: Okay. So how would you uh, approach a, a fellow classmate or a, a, a faculty member? I, or is more a classmate? Um, when you know they do say something that may be you know insensitive or you know not aligned well with your values because um i mean not to have a long story but like recently i had a i posted something and um you know i had i used some frustrated terminology for um the physician assistant facebook group who was blocking out deleting all the the blm um posts and stuff like that and i said that they were disgusting and rather than being outraged over the fact that, you know, there was a physician assistant group that was actively deleting BLL posts. They were upset at the fact that I used, you know, I, I said they were disgusting. That was basically what was the problem. And, um, I was told that I needed to check myself for my aggression. Um, and I try to have this conversation with said individual and, you know, um, I think I messaged that person like three days ago. It says red. And, you know, we had like a little conversation, They're like, "Oh, this isn't my conversation to have. I shouldn't have said anything, but." You know, in reality, this is the conversation we need to have, right? Because it's a dialogue, you know? If you never approach me about it, or if I never approach you about it, then you're never going to learn, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be blissfully unaware, I guess, in your your eyes, right? And so how do you have this conversation? Some people just want, you know, want to just be like, oh, you know, this isn't my conversation to have, therefore, I'm just going to stay quiet, you know? And that, in my eyes, that's just pure ignorance and neglect, so.
4: I think when it comes to somebody making a homophobic comment that's your classmate, whether or not you're part of that community, if you found it, it's kind of like the see something, say something, like the green dot type trainings. Um, I've never actually done a green dot training. So if you have, please let me know if it's awesome and if I should do it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, it's like that bystander intervention type thing. So if you hear something that's right, say, hey, man, that's not right, or, hey, y'all, <laughs> maybe not use a gender term <laughs> um, and just, you know, say that's really not right. Um, you know, if, you know, I understand you might have this ideology or whatever, but, um, you know, it's, it's not OK to discriminate against somebody like that, whether it's in a public setting or what. But um, I've always found that the easiest way to actually make substantial change was what I did with that instructor at the end of the class rather than, you know, when I raised my hand and corrected, politely by asking a question rather than saying, no, you're wrong. This is the right answer. It was kind of like, a, oh, well, what about these people? Kind of trying to see where their knowledge base was on the topic. And then when I realized it was not a battle worth fighting, I had classmates eyeing me like, oh gosh, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? He could get really mad right now. And I'm just like, get out my messenger and just start typing my anger and frustration to other people so that I would be able to kind of maintain it when I approached this instructor to let them know like, Hey, like, um, this is what I heard. And I just wanted to kind of get a better understanding of where you're coming from. And if you come at it from like, a am um, help me understand, rather than let me teach you, then usually the, the it's better received. Um, well you know that day I wasn't having bad days so I felt like I had the energy to do it but <laughs> if you'd asked me on that other day when I left the <laughs> room like crying and went home probably wouldn't have had the time or energy to <laughs> to teach that person so I think we kind of like I think anybody in my class could have had that same conversation you know and I could have said hey Maria like would you feel okay talking to this person about that and I would have been able to like Ease the burden, and that's where I get an ally of my community to do the work for me, who's happy to do it.
0: <laughs> Time for this week's Minority Report pearls. These are valuable tips from the Minority Report movement that are relevant to this episode's topic of discussion. Today's pearl is: um,
2: don't be ashamed at not knowing something that you were never taught. You know, there's no way for you to ever know. You know, if um, you're never taught it, but don't be ignorant enough to not educate yourself on the matter. And I think Cooper and Asia, you definitely, um, you know, reflected on that. You definitely educated myself or me personally. And you know, I learned a lot about, you know, what words not to use, how to phrase things. It's certain things that I wasn't really taught or I never retained. Even if I was taught it, I didn't retain it, you know, which is equally as bad. But, you know, it's, it's something that takes a
0: while sometimes to, you know, learn and remember. I definitely agree. and thank you again for educating us you know in terms of asking what to ask right um it's like the first time we take a regular patient history like oh when did this cough start you know so the more we prime ourselves to ask these kind of questions to get ourselves uncomfortable so that we can be comfortable and so we can have our patients be comfortable i think that goes a long way and so thank you again so much for you know educating us and to make sure that we're not going to be ignorant about it um and you know we'll, we'll continue to practice the way that you want us to practice too so
3: yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, as you uh, as said, I'm gonna go grab dinner. Um, but thank you so much for having me. I love what you guys are doing. This was really fun. Um, to anyone who's watching, if you have more specific questions for me um, at any time, feel free to shoot me a message on Instagram or um, I have an email link on there as well. I'm always happy to talk about these things and answer kind of the more specific questions if you have them. Um, so yeah, thank you guys so much.
1: Thank you. Um, and I know that Cooper wrote down your handle in the chat, but for the actual podcast, if you just want to go ahead and see your Instagram handle of where they can find you.
3: Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram at coutureandclinic. And I also blog with the same handle coutureandclinic.com.
4: And the same goes for me. Thank you so much for having us. Um, I really appreciate you offering the space during this month and uh, you know, um, we've made pride month more about black lives matter than anything so um i can't get off of this uh, podcast without saying those words (laughs) um pride month was started by a riot by a transgender black woman um in new york city it's stonewall so uh, my rights wouldn't exist if it weren't for black lives so um, just have to throw that out there but if you have questions about um anything related to lgbtq plus community or if you want me to connect you with others um my instagram handle is at Cooper Couch, um, and i would defer to at rectal rockstar <laughs> for literally anything related to um anorectal health for sure
3: <laughs> bye happy pride everyone
4: my name is Sato, and you can
2: reach me on Instagram at hardworkpaysoff.com. Oh, My, My, we'll so My name is Carlos Kaino, and you can reach me on Instagram at thefit.pa.s. My
0: name is Carl, and you can reach me on Instagram at whitecoldblack. My name is Aaron, and you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram man, at Aaron rise, Anchor. Motivated hustle so we all rise. Um, it's that minority report, man, we all shine. Let's go.